Our first reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 1 through 9, and can be found on page 1113 in the Church Bible. In Thessalonica, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd, out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. The second lesson is from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, on page 1186 in the Church Bibles, page 1186, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the Church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, 
Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Lynn. Would you have that passage in front of you? Uh, I think it's a slight echo, isn't there, Gary? If you could turn it down a little bit. Gary, could you turn the sound down a bit? Thanks. It's on page 1186. It's 1 Thessalonians. If you want to make a vicar unhappy, say these words, these two words. Archdeacon's visitation. Every three years, a senior official from the diocese comes to examine the systems and procedures of a local church. This involves asking many, many questions and separate meetings with the vicar, the curate, the church wardens, the staff, and the church council. After months of preparation by everyone, especially our operations manager, Gemma Shanofsky, we went through this trial recently. Some months later, we received a written report, and I'm glad to say that due to Gemma and everyone's hard work, we passed with flying colors. In our Lent course, we're considering five qualities of a spiritually healthy Christian, but now we're going to consider the marks of a spiritually healthy church by reading about one, one church that clearly was the church in Thessalonica. So I appoint you all this morning archdeacons for the moment. Let's look at St. Michael's through the lens of the church in Thessalonica. We read the story of the church's foundation in Acts 17. Paul and Silas arrived, went to the synagogue on three successive Sabbaths. And Paul then reasoned with them from the scriptures. Interesting, isn't it? People have this strange idea that Christians throw away their minds, not at all. We think harder than anybody else. So he reasoned with them from the scriptures, oh, incidentally, from the scriptures, because that's where the evidence is, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. That was a challenging uh, message because, in their view, someone who was suffering was clearly not from God. But, of course, from the prophets Isaiah and so on, Isaiah 53 and so on, it had been prophesied that the, the servant who would come would be the suffering servant. And his message was very effective. Some of the Jews, a large number of God-fearing Gentiles, and quite a few prominent women became Christians. And you would think everyone would be thrilled. Not a bit of it. The religious leaders felt threatened because they were having bigger groups than they were. Never happens in the Church of England, of course. Then they made a very serious accusation. Verse 6. These men who have caused trouble all over the world, other translations say have turned the world upside down, have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Interesting that they've got that part of the message about Jesus as king, but of course this is a very, very serious charge, nothing less than of treason. And that night, Paul and Silas had to flee the city. Paul had not been able to visit the Thessalonian Christians again, and therefore he was very concerned to discover if they were continuing as Christians in the face of persecution. He was thrilled to discover that they were indeed standing firm in the Lord, and he wrote this letter to encourage them further. So, what are the marks of a spiritually healthy church? Here's the first one. A spiritually healthy church produces 
transformed lives. It begins from their relationship with Jesus. Look at the greeting in verse 1 to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, well, that's straightforward, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Bearing in mind this is only 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, they are quite clear that Jesus is on the same level as God the Father. They are those people who are living in, rooted in, drawing its life from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. John Stott, in his very helpful commentary, suggests Paul's description is to remind this very young and persecuted church that in the midst of their trials, their security was in the Father and in the Son. And in addition, it was a gathering which demonstrated in its life together, look at verse 3, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's good to look at those three things just as a whole before looking at them separately. Together, they are outgoing, they are sure signs of the Holy Spirit being at work, and they're also productive. Things happen. Faith that leads to work for the Lord. There are evident signs of a changed heart and a concern for other people. They are looking outward. Are we an outward-looking church? Before, their attention was solely on themselves, their comfort, their ease, their entertainment. Now, they're working for the Lord. Now, they had a new focus and purpose. Every year, we deliver some, this year, it was 200 Christmas hampers. Started because a member of staff, Tina Aldridge, the late Tina Aldridge, together with Kay Morrow, had the vision that there were people who had nothing to celebrate at Christmas. It's hard work. Uh, There is a nameless supermarket who are not helpful. Every year the staff go, ah. 200 hampers go out, and I had this little note just this last week. We loved receiving the hampers from St. Michael's Chester Square. They offer such a simple way to show that we're part of a bigger church family. For some of the families and people who received the hampers, this was their only Christmas present. One family were recently evicted. The hamper was a real blessing. Another, a young man, we took his mother's funeral last year. Again, for him, this was his only Christmas present. For one lady, an older single lady, Christmas is hard because she's been effectively abandoned by her family. It was good to be able to show her that people do care. It matters. I'm encouraged. Next, their labor was prompted by love. Love for others will involve hard, tiring work. The Greek word love is agape, specifically described of God's costly, sacrificial, and general love for you and me. Knowing we are loved produces in Christians love for God and love for other people. That's the secret of children flourishing, actually that they know they are secure, that they are in their family's love. That's true for us. And finally, endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but um, I think these times are pretty desperate. I've been through the three-day week. I was a student with with the candles. I was in the Northeast with the coal miners' strike. 
But this is pretty grim. The marchers came by. I thought we were a democratic country. We won't go there. But for the Christian, this is not our only perspective. True hope looks expectantly towards the promise of Jesus' return. And endurance comes from that perspective. It puts suffering, trouble, despair, even in not in uh, that sort of perspective. It changes it. One commentator puts it with suffering. We are to display the fortitude of the stout-hearted soldier. It's old-fashioned language. But it's saying something. And the hope mentioned is not wishful thinking. It's the promise of Jesus' return when pain, suffering, and tears will end. I can't begin to imagine the effect on a country, on three countries, of, of what's happening in East Africa. Can you? I've seen the photographs, people sitting on their houses, isolated by water. I'm longing for that to end. What's the catalyst of this change? Have a look at verse 4. It's the little phrase, God has chosen you. Now, this is what's called the doctrine of election, and that causes some difficulties in people's minds. The result of it, though, is beneficial. There's no place for presumption, arrogance, only for humility. There's no real explanation for God's love except one given in Deuteronomy 7 to God's people. Moses, speaking to God's people, reminds them of this. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. He chose us because he loves us, and he loves us because he loves us. We are not lovable, for God certainly sees us as we truly are, but he is the God of love supremely demonstrated in the gift of Jesus as we think, as we head towards Good Friday and Easter. So the church is not just or even a human institution. It's the people of God transformed by the love of God living rooted in the Father and the Son. Archdeacons, how are we doing? How are we doing here? Are people's lives being changed Here's the second mark of a spiritually healthy church. It experiences God's power. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. Now, he's not saying that no words are needed. Otherwise, I could give up. Uh, Some of you look as if you are giving up on me speaking. No, no, there has to be some speaking. You knew coming to church today, I hope that there will be somebody speaking. And the reason for that is that the gospel, the message of God, is a word message. It has content. It needs to be explained. I love the passage in Romans 10. How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they're sent? The gospel didn't make any sense to me until someone explained the wonderful exchange on the cross. My imperfections for Jesus' perfection. Someone had to tell me. The Alpha Course, which we run. What is it? It's simply an opportunity to look at the evidence to see who Jesus is. Who do you say I am? Ask the questions. 
because there are things to understand. And that will help people's misunderstanding, in my case, failure to understand. But the message is delivered in such a way that by the Holy Spirit, God's power penetrates deep inside us to heart, mind, and will. And the Greek word power is dunamis, we get dynamite. When the Thessalonians heard the gospel, its effect on them was like dynamite. And the Holy Spirit brings deep conviction. Paul presented the gospel confidently because he was sure of its truth and relevance. After all, it had changed his life. So the Holy Spirit takes the truth of God's word deep into our lives as a result, hopefully, of clear, bold proclamation, and it makes a deep impact. And we can see that at Pentecost, after Peter's sermon, with those who heard it, they were cut to the heart. They did not say, lovely sermon, vicar. What shall we do, is what they said. So, archdeacons, here's the question. Have you sensed God speaking in power to us as a church, ever? about what we are to be and what we are to do? Has he spoken to you in a sermon, a Bible study, or in your time of prayer? Because it's the second mark of a spiritually healthy church. Here's the third mark. A spiritually healthy church will spread the gospel. Look at verse 6. You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Well, what sort of suffering were they experiencing? Well, of course, it would have uh, involved opposition, opposition to the gospel. We see that today. Opposition to the preachers, Paul and Silas, they had to flee. And it is well to remind ourselves that a genuine gospel will arouse hostility in some people because it challenges, says John Stott, human pride and self-indulgence. Human pride and self-indulgence is revealed by the gospel. But in addition to the suffering, the Thessalonians, note this, had real joy. Joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't be surprised when the Holy Spirit is present that there's often joy. Did you see one of the little girls? She fell over. She was running to children's church, and she was so excited she fell over. That must say something. That's certainly not what I did when I was a little child. You see, we can forget the gospel about Jesus is really good news. When Paul and Silas were in prison in Acts 16, there was an earthquake. Do you remember that? It opened the prison doors. The prisoners' chains fell off. And the prison warder, of course, knew that uh, the result of failure was execution for him. So he was about to commit suicide. Paul said, don't. And the jailer asked the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So the gospel was shared in a crisis situation. That's okay. Some people need earthquakes. What is the result? The jailer was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. (laughs) Such a relief when I came to a personal faith. Made sense of everything. 
I understood who I was. I understood who God was. I understood that he loved me. I understood what happened on the cross. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, my wife will say, I'm not somebody who's overwhelmed by joy, but I was very happy because nobody told me. And the Thessalonians welcomed the gospel message. In spite of their sufferings, they became imitators. Interesting word of the apostles and of Jesus. Are we trying to be imitators? It wasn't a matter of intellectual assent only. It was that, certainly. But it involved a change of behavior. They were different people. And this was so striking and noticeable. Have a look at verse 7. They became models to the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The imitators, in their turn, were imitated, as somebody put it. So we see a progression of the gospel. There's opposition, there's joy of the Holy Spirit, there's imitation of Jesus and the apostles. They become models to other Christians. That tells you there's reality there. That tells you that they are changed people. Other people noticed. (laughs) In my previous church... Uh, an elderly lady came to a personal faith and her family came to me very worried they said we're very worried about our mother and I said what's you know thinking oh dear what have I done and they said well when she lived in she's lived on her own in her house every night she locked the door to her bedroom she stopped locking the door but you see the point they noticed something had happened Something in their eyes which was radical. She was not afraid. As a result of being models, look at verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. It sounded out like a trumpet. Uh, I had the glorious experience of hearing Handel's Messiah in Westminster Abbey on Thursday. There was a trumpeter who plays. It's right at the end. Oh, it was glorious. That's what our faith, that's what their faith sounded out. It's like a crashing roll of thunder. You couldn't miss it. William Barclay comments this, I think very, very strikingly. There's something tremendous about the shared defiance of early Christianity. When all prudence would have dictated a way of life that would escape notice, avoid danger and persecution, the Christians blazoned forth their faith. They were never ashamed to show whose they were and whom they sought to serve. Are we ashamed? And as a result, their faith in God became known everywhere, certainly beyond Greece, possibly further into the Roman Empire, because the most effective form of communication is not social media. It's word of mouth. It's word of mouth. And Paul and Silas, I don't know if you noticed this, Paul and Silas didn't need to talk to others about what was going on in Thessalonica. Other people were telling them. (laughs) Rather worrying. I mean, I'm ready to tell everyone. No, no, we know all about it. You see, a church that spreads the gospel is a spiritually healthy church. Are we at St. Michael's a church which is spreading the gospel joyfully? What was it that struck outsiders who were observing this young church? What made them sit up? Have a look at verses 9 and 10. And it's my fourth and final point about a spiritually healthy church. They lived the gospel. 
They tell, verse 9, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Do you see the three steps of their conversion? You turned to serve to wait. They turned to God from idols, a complete change of allegiance, from dead idols to the living God, from what was false to what is true, from the visible, tangible gods to the invisible and intangible, real and living God. I love Psalm 115. Always makes me smile. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, cannot speak, eyes, cannot see, noses, cannot smell, and he goes through the list. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. I think our very first trip to Tanzania, um, there was a water shortage. You know we have a mission partnership in Tanzania. And uh, it was known that on a hill nearby there was a water spring, but nobody would go up and take it because they were alarmed by the evil spirits. And the diocesan secretary, a woman who was quite short, said, I'm not having this. Jesus is bigger than this. So she walked up the hill and she came down. No harm. Jesus is bigger. Jesus is real. Our idols are much more sophisticated, of course, because we have them. Money, celebrity, things. Immorality and greed can also become idolatry, says Paul, writing to the Ephesians. And worshipping these is just as much a form of slavery as those from the Old Testament. I probably told you, we, Chester Square has lots of very smart cars. Even I, who don't care about cars, know that some of them are very smart. And people take photographs. And every so often, when I'm feeling naughty, I say, they rust. <laughs> you see, a personal encounter with Jesus Christ breaks the power of the spell of any idol as we acknowledge and worship the rightfully the one who should be worshipped. There's a turning away turn towards the living and true God, a new life of service and freedom. There's a life of patient waiting. We cannot make heaven on earth. We have to wait for his return, for the world to be restored as it was meant to be originally. doesn't mean to say we don't work for it. And in that moment, Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes, no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And as we say in the creed, when Jesus returns, it's as the author coming onto the stage at the end of the play, he will come to judge the world. He longs to rescue us from the coming wrath. That is not anger. It's not God being angry. It is not God losing his temper. It simply describes God's unchangeable hostility to all that is evil. So a church that receives the gospel must pass it on. It only can do so if it has been visibly changed by the gospel. It commands, are we a changed sort of community? If people were to come and be with us, would they catch a glimpse of who Jesus is? John Stott said, we must embody it as a church in our common life of faith, love, joy, peace, righteousness, and hope. Do we embody the gospel? at St. Michael's. Archdeacons? So what we see here 
as I conclude, is the Thessalonian church shows us a spiritually healthy church. It produces, firstly, transformed lives. Secondly, it experiences God's power by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, it spreads the gospel. And fourthly, they live the gospel. It wasn't just mere words. So, is St. Michael's a spiritually healthy church? What would be your report? I'll give you my temporary report. I believe that we do see a number of these characteristics. I thank God for them. I don't think anything could bring us such a diverse group of people together unless there was some reality in our common shared faith in Jesus. However, I'm sure there's no room for complacency. And I'm sure that there is more spiritual growing for us all to be done together as a church. So let us continue to pray for one another, for this church, to speak, act, live as boldly and as unapologetically disciples of Jesus as the Thessalonian Christians did, remembering they did it in a time of suffering. Let us pray.